This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hammerich. Today on Episode 7 of Season 2. Plant genetic resources are a guarantee that we can continue to improve the farm gate value of that harvested crop. Dr. Claire Coyne, curator of the USDA Cool Season Food Legume Collection in Pullman, Washington, joins the show. Claire has worked at the station for 25 years and has been in her current role since 1998. She's responsible for over 22,000 accessions of peas, lentils, chickpeas, and fava beans. This collection serves as the genetic resources available to breeders and researchers to develop new varieties of pulse crops. In today's episode, Claire gives us a really fascinating look into this extensive collection. You're going to hear how it's curated, preserved, and utilized to continue to provide high-quality seed to researchers and ultimately to farmers. The program for maintaining our crop's genetic resources is not new. In fact, it goes back to the very beginning. This collection started at the beginning of the United States agriculture. You know, most of our crops that we grow in the United States are introduced. And so from the founding of our country, the government has been collecting primarily land races. So these are cultivars grown over the centuries by other countries where the crops originated. So our founding fathers gave the assignment to our diplomatic corps, you know, that eventually became the State Department, to go around markets and farms and collect interesting crops. And then they would ship those back to the United States. And then they started to grow those in in the U.S. And a big example would be soybean that, you know, originated in Asia. So something that was an introduced crop became uh, very important to U.S. agriculture. So the same thing for the cool season food legumes, peas, chickpeas, and lentils had to be introduced. And so here on the Palouse region of Washington State, in the early part of the 20th century, lentils were introduced. They did very well under our dryland conditions and became established legume in our crop rotation with our primary crop of winter wheat. Similarly, along that time, dry peas were also introduced, and they formed the same function as uh, important rotational crops with the wheat crops. The growers found out very early they rotated out of the cereal into a legume with its nitrogen-fixing ability that, that worked very well for their crop rotations. The seeds are stored under refrigeration in controlled humidity as part of a combined state and USDA effort. Under ideal conditions, Claire says, they can store for as long as maybe 100 years. But Claire and her colleagues are constantly active in curating the collection to maintain it as live, healthy seed, both there in Pullman for Pulse Crops, but also in other stations around the country. Pullman is a larger station. We have four regional stations here in Pullman, Ames, Iowa, Griffin, Georgia, and up in New York. So those are the four regional stations. We call them regional stations because they're a combined state and USDA effort. So part of the funding for those stations comes from the land-grant universities, and that funding is set up through the Hatch Act that funds land-grant research. So those are regional stations. In addition to the regional stations, 
There's also stations primarily at other land-grant universities. I'll give the example of Corvallis, uh, where I did my graduate work. There we have the small fruit and pear collections and hazelnut collection. And so it's associated with the land-grant university, but it has its own farm and facilities and greenhouses. And the soybean collection is in Urbana, and uh, the potato collection is up in Wisconsin. I mentioned the tropical crops are in Hawaii and Puerto Rico, and uh, corn is in Iowa. And you may be familiar with the Svalbard Global Seed Vault up in the Arctic. But as you just heard from Claire, there are plenty of crop genetic resources kept in USDA facilities and similar collections in other places around the world. So our estimate of uh, genetic resources available is around 7 million. 7 million lines are currently being preserved in different gene banks around the world. And it depends on the country, how developed it is. So, you know, if we think like Canada and Europe, different countries, they tend not to be as extensive as the USDA system. I think we can look at the USDA system as the, you know, gold standard for plant genetic resources in the world. For some of the major crops, we also have the international research stations. Uh, CIMIT is in Mexico. It holds the world collection of maize. ICARDA in uh, Morocco holds the world collection of lentil and fava bean. And ICRASAT in India holds the world collection of chickpea. So major crops in the world have international centers that have excellent gene banks that are on par with the USDA system. But these collections don't just exist for academic or historical purposes. They serve a very important role in making sure that breeders have the genetic material they need to develop varieties that continue to meet the needs of growers. Mainly because we don't know what our future challenges are going to be. And so if we're presented with a new disease or a disease that in the past wasn't a problem, all of a sudden becomes a problem, then we need these breeding resources. And I'll give an example of one of the big problems we're having in our Montana and North Dakota regions is an uptick in root rots. And so we've gone into the gene bank and screened hundreds of lines in order to find a handful that have a high enough resistance that that's going to make a difference in a cultivar for the growers. So that's a problem that previously wasn't a problem in lentil, and, and now it has a significant economic impact. So that's where the plant genetic resources that we carry we have to have enough in order to find the resistance that we need for future and current challenges. Claire says just in the past three years, and just in peas alone, she shipped out 24,000 samples to breeders and researchers. And the collections keep on growing as wild relatives from all over the world are sourced and added. We're actively still collecting, and I wanted to mention crop wild relatives. So within a crop, there's a species complex, and these other species that are in the same complex 
frequently hold immunity genes to some of our most severe disease challenges. And so in the past, we haven't put that much effort. But within the last 10 years, we're realizing that the genetic reserve that's held in these crop wild relatives is very key to future progress made in our crops and not just on diseases, but also on yield components and nutritional components. And so currently there's a a large effort on behalf of the USDA to collect crop wild relatives that we have crop wild relatives, not in the legumes, but some of our other crops right here in the United States. And then on the international level, the Global Crop Diversity Trust that runs the Svalbard Gene Bank that holds the world's genetic resources put forward an effort, and they've spent the last six years targeting crops. Um, I'll give pea as an example, was one of the targeted, where we just do not have enough of the crop wild relatives of that pea species complex in our collection or in any collection in the world. And so they hired botanists from the Kew Gardens in the United Kingdom to go through the Mediterranean region and Central Asia and collect more pea crop wild relatives. And then they were donated to the USDA collection in 2018. So we're in the process of regenerating those lines and making those available to breeders. And the reason they selected the USDA is because they know that we will grow them out and make those available to breeders. I came up with a little analogy for crop wild relatives. And I said, these are like cousins at your family weddings. You kind of have awkward conversations with them. But at the family picnic, you want them on your softball team because they have the ability to hit the ball out of the park. And so I'll give the comparison. They have like this disease resistance. They're completely immune to some of our important diseases. So while you have awkward conversations with them, you really want them on your genetic breeding team. In addition to the example you just heard about peas, Claire says there are priority efforts for collecting more of these crop wild relatives of lentils and fava beans as well. I think of my crops, the, the peas, chickpeas, and lentils and fava bean, lentil is the one that, that I'm focused on getting more of the crop wild relatives. Some of that material is now held in other gene banks, so I'll be requesting that. And then some of it still actually needs to be collected in the Mediterranean basin. The USDA runs a plant exploration office, kind of like a competitive grant, but it's a a funding program. So when a curator or the community feels like they need more material, then we apply for funding and then the plant exchange office funds that exploration So we have one funded with the Spanish gene bank to continue collecting lentil crop wild relatives in Spain. So that's funding and we're just waiting for the agreements to be signed and for the pandemic travel restrictions to be lifted. 
And then another one that we have funded is for fava bean, and that's collecting land races in Morocco. So the USDA collection for fava bean is, is modest at this point, but it has a lot of potential as a future crop for U.S. growers. Once collected, Claire and her colleagues will grow these lines out in the field and collect data. And that data is available online to researchers of all kinds wanting to utilize these genetics. In fact, she says there's even kind of an online shopping cart, almost like Amazon. The highest number of researchers accessing the collection are breeders, but plant pathologists access it. And then also plant physiologists access it. And then for the wild relatives, we get quite a number of plant ecologists and uh, archaeologists even looking at trying to determine what were the genetic changes that happened as the crops were domesticated. So if we go back, you know, tens of thousands of years, at a certain point, the cultivated species came into existence and then, you know, the early farmers were selecting those. So there's a lot of interest in what is the genetic change between that transition from being a wild relative to being the cultivar. And, you know, advances in sequencing and the costs going down in in DNA sequencing, we're able to see like what the genetic signature is, what, what genetic changes happened to turn that into a domesticated crop. And so that kind of information, it, it seems like, well, is, is that academic? But actually, it's giving us clues of how we can more quickly or more efficiently use these wild relatives in improving crops that are eventually going to become excellent cultivars for the growers. Uh, just in case you can't tell, Claire clearly loves her job. I asked if, after doing this work for over 25 years, she still feels excited when a new accession arrives. Oh my God, you can't believe it. I mean, it's really, (laughs) these are big events. So in 2019, a researcher in Israel that we've been collaborating with made a donation of 121 wild peas. So that's like a tremendous resource for breeders in the future. Um, This particular species, it's called Pison fulvum. A previous entomologist here in Pullman identified it as a good source for resistance to pea weevil. So pea weevil is a big problem here on the Palouse and pea production. We have to spray at least two times in order to protect the seed from the weevil. So having that new collection, we'll be able to identify other traits. There was a new gene identified for resistance to powdery mildew also in this pison fulvum. So, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very exciting when we get new material in. And uh, we have our North American Pulse Improvement meetings, and then that's when I can get that information out to the breeding community. And a lot of this excitement is because this genetic material could hold the keys to varieties that can overcome whatever challenges the future may hold for pulse crop growers. I guess the elephant in the room is, you know, how much is our climate going to change? And since these resources are collected in 
many different environments from drier and wetter conditions, the genetics that are held within the gene bank can be an excellent resource as we meet any kind of challenges with a shifting environment. And I guess the kind of a bottom line for growers is if we can rely on a genetic answer so that when you plant that cultivar, you already have a package where you're ahead of the game. If there is drought tolerance, if there is heat tolerance, if there is disease resistance in the genetics of that cultivar that you're planting, then that's an additional production cost that you don't have to bear. So I see it as improving plant genetic resources are a guarantee that we can continue to improve the farm gate value of that harvested crop. And increasing that farm gate value is likely to include efforts from both the public sector and the private sector. And as pulses have become more popular, Claire has definitely noticed an uptick in interest. We've seen an increase in acreage of peas, chickpeas, and lentils in the United States. And with that increase in those crops, we're seeing current breeding companies take up these crops and also new companies looking to develop cultivars for these crops. So, yeah, in the last 10 years, there's been a significant uptick in uh, private breeding companies accessing the USDA resources. It's, it's an excellent way to start a new breeding program. By going into these resources, they can quickly develop their advanced breeding or superior populations to develop new cultivars out of. One factor that is probably driving some of this interest in pulse crops is, of course, plant-based protein. In peas, as one example, what was once a byproduct is now a highly sought-after quality. You know, in the last few years, there's been uh, tremendous interest in plant-based protein. And so, you know, I spoke quite a bit about looking at plant genetic resources for disease resistance, but we can also look at gene banks for traits that become important in, in the marketplace. So pea protein is important in the marketplace now. And so we're looking and screening the, the entire collection for protein concentration. And so that data will be put out to all the breeding community through our website. So it's not a new trait, but it is a new trait in terms of interest in the marketplace. So that's, I guess, another reason why growers might be interested, why this uh, gene bank is so important, because we can, oh, we're interested in protein. Well, let's look at the whole collection. It's about 6,000 lines of pea, and we've scanned about 4,000 of those lines now. And we're in the process of putting all that data on the database for the breeding community to access. So what's coming next for breeding pulse crops? It'll be exciting to see what happens as more modern technology and breeding techniques utilize this massive database we have of genetic material. I think uh, it's uh, the genotyping side and the phenotyping side. So researchers now are moving into using high throughput phenotyping 
techniques, you know, using the drones and the robots in the fields so that we can look at more material in one environment in one year. And then the twin aspect on the DNA side of it, going into a collection and collecting sequence data on the whole collection and then presenting that material to the breeding and research community. That'll increase the efficiencies of going into the collection and and utilizing it. So when I talk about the sequencing, that sounds a little vague, but what we're talking about now when we sequence plants, we're sequencing the genes. So for a particular genetic resistance, that way when you go and select a line, you can say, oh, it has high protein, but it also has the gene for resistance to powdery mildew. That's going to be a good line to use. So by combining massive amounts of data about evaluation data with massive amounts of data on the actual genes in that line, the future of plant genetic resources, I would say we're kind of like at an infancy in terms of how this is all going to explode in utility. Now that we have partial genotyping done on the on the pea collection, for example, we're starting to see a lot more research going on because um, genotype package is there along with phenotype. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Claire Coyne for being on the show. What a fascinating look into an important part of agriculture that really many people don't even know about. I really enjoyed that episode, and thank you very much again to Claire for taking the time. And for you listening, make sure you're subscribed to this show on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss our next episode with Dave Oyen. These lentils are absolutely nutritious food, great for our livestock, good for our rotations, good for our farming practices. And uh, as luck would have it, the organic industry was really kind of starting to get some legs. So the markets were expanding. And we discovered that, in fact, there was a need in the food market for certified organic lentils and peas in those days. And about a decade later, we started growing chickpeas as well. Again, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that upcoming episode. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council, as well as the North Central IPM Center and USDA NIFA. We're releasing these episodes every other week throughout the growing season, and we want to make sure that the information is relevant to you. So please tweet us with any feedback or suggestions by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops, and we'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.